the summertime for us is a uh, ongoing, feels like, months of birthdays. We've got three boys, and uh, every time there's a birthday party or leading up to it, there's like an Amazon wish list. There's a long list of, now I want this, now I want this. And if you've got boys, you know that they, they like to switch like every six months of what their favorite thing is. So then it's Monster Trucks, then it's Godzilla, then it's Transformers, uh, then it's baseball, then it, and it just keeps going. And so it's like, hey, you asked for this six months ago, but now it's your birthday, and you're asking for something completely different. That's why we we'll buy something from Amazon because we know all we need is this, this lead time of two days. That's what we need, just this lead time of two days of what they're going to ask. But uh, we got family members, family members give them cash on their birthday, gift cards, and the first thing I hear from them, we hear from them when they get this is, when can we go to Target? And I'm like, man, we just, I mean, we, your mom spent like four hours this morning prepping for this party. Then we did all the toys. Then I spent two hours building the Lego sets that you got with you. And now you're like, when we're going? I'm like, not today. <laughs> That's when. Maybe sometime soon. But what I love about uh, my kids is so many things. But what I love is they ask. They ask. That they're freed up to ask. Like, they're just, they, they feel so confident. They feel so, like, secure with us that they're just going to ask for anything at any time, uh, all the time. You know, that kind of, like, interrupting asking, like you could be doing whatever you're doing and they're going to grab on you and say, hey, 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 what about this? We're like, okay, all right, I'm talking to someone, we got to learn these, the manner stuff, but, but thank you, thank you for asking. And that's what we see today is God giving us clarity uh, on what it looks like to be his children and to go to him with our request, with our prayers. And so First John 5, like I said earlier, we're, we're almost finishing this book. If, if you're new with us, we typically just walk through books of the Bible. We won't do that after First John. We're actually going to walk through a series on families from marriage to parenting to uh, a lot of things between now and Ephesians in the fall. That's where we're heading, but that's what we typically do. And so First John 5, I'd love for you to see it with me if you have a Bible. First John 5 verse 13. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so three things the Father gives us this morning are this. The Father gives us assurance of eternal life. And that's what John has been doing throughout this whole book is writing to believers and giving them assurance of eternal life while also uh, putting some pressure and, and kind of stirring up some things in people that confess that they know Jesus but they don't know Jesus. Now you, you may have genuine doubts, your sin might make you question your faith. Other worldviews may be alluring to you, but God wants you to be assured of your relationship with him. He wants you to be confident children, confident in his love for you and confident that you know that you have eternal life. Up to this point, John said this kind of phrase five times, this I've written this so, I've written this because, this is the reason I'm writing, and one theologian takes all these together and summarizes it with this. I'm writing because you are true believers, but there are deceivers in your midst, and I want you to be rock, solid, confident in your present possession of eternal life as regenerate children of God, so that you are not drawn away after sin. And if this letter has that effect, my joy will be complete. So 
At the heart of John's reason for writing is the desire to help them know they are born again, that they now have new spiritual life, eternal life. So with John saying, we're saying to trust Jesus is to have eternal life. You're new. You're not perfect, but because of Jesus, your future is. So let the Father's words of assurance again in this book wash over your mind and your heart and your body. You believe in the Son of God, so know that you have eternal life. Now, if, if you're not a Christian, Jesus is inviting you to take his claims seriously, to at the least have an open mind to who he says he is and what he has done for you. Now, if you're a Christian, John is speaking to you here and he's saying, your confidence in prayer is rooted in your confidence in eternal life. That because you have eternal life, confidently go to the Father. With confidence, with boldness to the Father. It's verse 14. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we, we know that we have what we have asked of him. So he gives us assurance of eternal life, but he also gives us confidence in our prayers with eternal life in us. We go boldly before the Father, not scared, not timid, not silent, but boldly go to him with our request. Why? Because we've seen throughout this whole book, the Father loves us. He loves his children, and he loves to listen to us. And I've said this 10 times in this series, but it, it bears repeating. Don't let your father figure in your life determine how you think about God the Father, but let God the Father determine what fatherhood is like. And what fatherhood from God the Father is this. He loves and he loves to hear you. He loves to listen to you. Maybe you've been shunned, rejected, abandoned by your dad, but you've got to push through that and see the Father is not like that. The Father is perfect, holy, gracious, and loving, and loves you. Pours his affections on you through the Spirit. Loving parents typically have bold children. Children who feel their parents' affections typically go boldly to them and yank on their shirt and their pants to get their attention and ask them for what they want. Why? Because they know they have that relationship with their parents. They can go to their parents. They know that their parents are going to stop and listen and work with them or uh, give them what they're requesting. So if your father loves you, go boldly before him. Confidently into his presence with your request. Not timid, not fearful, not unsure. If you think about uh, ancient times and, and, and the, maybe even the story of Esther, that, that to go into the king's presence without an invitation could end up in your death, most likely. That's not how it is for us. You've been invited. 
to boldly come into his presence. And not, not like a one-off invitation or a, hey, only in your like, quiet time, that, that just you know, 30 minutes in the morning, in the, uh, the evening, you can come to me now. He's saying, all the time, the veil has been torn by Jesus. You can walk into the presence of the Father's majesty at any time and ask him what you want to ask him. And then he says, if we ask according to his will, he hears us. And since he hears us, we have what we ask for. Now, in this book, we've seen that maturity, that growth in the Christian life is loving more and more what the Father loves. What does the Father love? He loves his son. He loves his children. He loves mercy and justice and so much more. And then we get caught up in this love and love more and more what he loves. But in this text, we see maturity also includes wanting for yourself what the Father wants for you. That's his point here. That you would want for yourself what the Father wants for you. That from James and from Jesus and the Gospel of John, we don't ask selfishly for our selfish desires we ask for his will to be done we ask according to what he's revealed in his word we want more and more of what he wants for us because everything that he wants for us is good for us romans 12 2 says his will is good pleasing and perfect like when you don't know what you want or what you want is actually going to jack up or destroy the rest of your life, you, you begin to understand, I'm going to surrender to what he wants for me because what he wants for me is what's best for me. What does he want? Well, why we have the uh, three things in the welcome center that we always talk about, he wants that for us. He wants us to delight in the Trinity. He wants us to cultivate deep friendships. He wants us to boldly evangelize. He wants us to make disciples and plant churches. And then twice in 1 Thessalonians, he, he makes some other explicit things of his will. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is God's will, your sanctification for your maturity, for your growth, for you to, to be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. And then he comes back in chapter 5, verse 14, and we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The Father wants for you your maturity, and he wants you to want that as well your progressive sanctification. And the Father wants you to love others, and the Father wants you to rejoice and give thanks. And so if we connect all this, you see what I'm asking, what John is asking? Pray for maturity, and he'll give it to you. Pray for greater love towards others, and he'll give it to you. Pray for your heart to rejoice in Jesus, and he will give it to you. 
George Mueller helps us with the inclination and the objections in our heart to what I just said, and this is what he says. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, it's laying hold of his willingness. You're not trying to talk to him and say, hey, hey, I know you're like a stingy miser, but will you give me this? No, you're laying hold of his willingness to give you what he wants for you because he's a generous father, not a stingy miser. So we're going to say, hey, I'm going to ask you. Why? Because I know you're a generous, wealthy father who loves to give good gifts to his children. So I'm going to keep asking and asking, boldly asking. He's so willing to give us good gifts. And not only willing, but powerful and able to do so. To hear you and grant your requests. He's not, he's not a stingy miser. He's a generous father. So that's how we come before him boldly, asking him. Uh, yanking on his shirt, his pants, proverbially, to ask, Dad, can you give this to me? Dad, will you give more of this to me? Dad, will you help me in this? Asking, asking, asking. Now, I want you to think about this. Because in First John, there's always implications for our relationships with, with one another. So if you, if you complain regularly about your spouse, if you vent regularly and complain and grumble about your kids, uh, if you grumble and complain regularly about your church, your coworkers, can I just ask you, have you prayed for them? Have you prayed for them? Anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Neither does mumbling and complaining behind someone's back. It doesn't. If you actually are for them and want them to grow, then first John is saying, pray for them. Take them to the Father and ask for him to work in them. Now, we have to address that God's will may be different than what you want. <laughs> it may be, but it will always be better than what you want. So that Father is inviting us to want what he wants for us. He's inviting us to want his will in all of our relationships and circumstances. He's inviting us to boldly come to him with our request. Now, what about those things that you're unsure if they're his will or not? What if it hasn't been revealed in the word and you're trying to wrestle through, should I move here? Should I buy this? Should I do this? How, like, what are those, what's that place? What does that look like? How do we ask boldly and trust him? Well, James 4 says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Paul Miller in his book, uh, A Praying Life, states, these are two cliffs we can fall off in our request, not asking and asking selfishly. Like you don't have because you don't ask. So ask, finding you to boldly come to him with your request, but also not to ask selfishly just for our selfish desires, to spin it just on our passions. And then Jesus shows what it looks like to not fall on either cliff. 
particularly in the Garden of Gethsemane. In his prayer, he asks, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He asks for the Father to take away this cup of wrath that he's about to drink down tomorrow on the cross for our sins. So he boldly asks the Father. But in the next breath, he prays, yet not what I will, but what you will. Paul Miller, he, he says this about, he says, Jesus is real about his feelings, but they don't control him, nor does he try to control God with them. He doesn't use his ability to communicate with his father as a means of doing his own will. He submits to the story that his father is weaving in his life. And in the book, he has this image of these two cliffs of not asking and asking selfishly, to, to be separated from God and isolate yourself and not ever go to him, or to go to him just demanding of him that he will give you what you want. But good asking is me asking and trusting, me completely asking and completely surrendering. Jesus does this, avoids this. He takes his deepest request to God and he surrenders his will to God. And so where we're going is family, ask boldly and surrender completely. This is what the father wants for his children. And they've been doing this throughout human history. In ancient times, there's three young men who are facing being burned alive by their king. And he tells them, you're going to bow down to me. You're going to bow down to these statues that I've made of these gods or I'm going to throw you in this blazing bonfire. And they reply, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. They, they avoid the cliff of not asking by boldly declaring that God's going to rescue him. But then in the same breath, the next breath, they say, But even if he does not res rescue us, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. So these three men, which are uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the book of Daniel, are asking boldly and surrendering completely. They avoid functional deism, that he's just the aloof God that doesn't care of us and doesn't hear us. And they also <laughs> avoid um, this separation from God. And they also avoid living selfishly by actually surrendering to the story that God has placed them in. So the, the big idea of all this is that because we have eternal life, go confidently to your Father. Confidently. And then it's the last section. He kind of gets a little specific and gives us direction on... Uh, praying for a fellow believer. Verse 16. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. Whew. All right. There's a lot there. Let's just address the first the sin that leads to death. 
Now, John's readers must have known what he's talking about. That's why he doesn't give a definition, and that's why we don't know exactly what he's talking about. We don't. We don't know exactly what he's saying right here. There's scholars that have put forth like four different options of this is what he means. It's the cardinal um, sin. It's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's this. It's this. And just in context, though, I'm going to tell you what I think, and that's as far as I'm going to go. This is what I think, okay? I think that he is that he has in mind the sin of the secessionists, the people that have left the church and have turned and started teaching falsely about Jesus. And what is their sin? Their sin is this. They deny that Jesus is the Messiah in the flesh and they deny his atoning sacrifice. And so to believe that, to deny that, is to put yourself outside of the forgiveness of Christ. Why? Because you're denying the one who forgives. You're denying the one who has died in your place for your sin. You're denying that God has sent his son and his son is fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life and died in our place, rose from the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father where he reigns right now. That's the truth. And then when he says <laughs> the other little phrase that can trip us up of, I don't want you to pray about that. It's like, well, that's strange. Because usually John is very clear on his commands. Like when he's going to tell you what to do, he's going to be direct, right? Frank. He's just going to tell you, boom, it's black and white. Here you go. And this phrase is like, what, are you sidestepping the issue? Are you ambivalent about praying for people that, that are sinning in this way? Or are you telling us like a, a specific command that we shouldn't pray for people with this sin? Again, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know exactly what he's saying. If he is commanding us to not pray for those people, then, I mean, we have a little bit that makes sense when God tells Jeremiah multiple times to not pray for the nation of Israel because their sins are repugnant. Or when Jesus in John 17 uh, refrains from praying for the world. So maybe it's that. But we're not going to, like, stand on something and, and try to, uh, uh, this is just good Bible study methods. Don't create a whole theology on something that's murky. Start with what's very clear and let that clarify what's murky. So you know what's very clear? The next part. What's God's will if you see a brother or sister in Christ committing a sin? You pray for them. That's what. How do you say it? If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give life to him. We pray for them. We pray for them. Not gossip about them. And you see that it said see, not hurt here. It doesn't get real wonky when we hear rumors of people's sin, and we go off of that. Say, no, if you see, if you observe this sin... Pray for them. Not spread rumors, not be judgmental and self-righteous, but pray. Not cancel them, but pray for them. Like Jesus prays for us, thank God that Jesus doesn't uh, respond to our sin like we respond to other people's sins so many times. He's alive, actually, right now, interceding to the Father on our behalf. And on earth, he prayed for his disciples, even on the eve of his crucifixion. 
If you recall, Peter is so gung-ho, he tells Jesus, I will not deny you. No matter who else bells on you, no matter who else leaves you, I'm going to stick by your side, even if that means death. If you're going to die, I'm going to be on the cross next to you. That's me. I don't know about all these other guys. Me. I'm with you. And uh, Jesus prays this. <laughs> Tells him this. Satan, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So like Jesus, when we see a fellow believer committing a sin, we move to the Father in prayer for them. And we move towards them in love. How do I make those comments? Well, I see that clearly from 1 John 5 that we're going to go to the Father when we see a, a brother or sister committing a sin. But then Galatians 6.1 tells us, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourself so that you also won't be tempted. What beauty, what loveliness would our church look like if we didn't get dragged into a cancel culture, but we stayed with a growth culture? Growth culture, a culture where we know from God's word that we will sin against one another. But because of Jesus' blood and forgiveness, we forgive. And we see, when we see a family member sin, we're not appalled, but know God is working in all of us growing us, maturing us, and we're committed to growing together rather than cast people off or isolate and self-protect because of previous wounds. What would it look like if we stayed in that culture of just, we are going to grow together. We're going to stick in this together. We're not going to shame them and put them out and say everything that they've ever done is bunk. We're done with those people. No, we're going to not fight them. We're actually going to battle with them. We're going to come alongside them and say, hey, hey, I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to fight this sin with you. I'm going to be here with you. And I know that we all need a lot of gospel, a lot of safety, and a lot of time that we're all on this long path. of obedience and maturity and growth, all heading towards seeing Jesus face to face. So I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to stick with you, and I'm going to fight with you, I'm going to help you. And we're going to ask things like, how can we fight this together? What would be helpful for me to, to do in your life? What, how can I serve you in this? Not, I'm done with you. I can't believe you could do something like that. That's the sound, the contrast of shame versus grace. How could you do something like that? I'm done with you versus we are all sinners, me particularly, 
I need Jesus. I believe so do you. So I'm going to come alongside you, and we're going to fight this together. That's grace. That's a culture of growth where we're committing to growing. Not that we're going to be perfect. Go back to 1 John 1. We're going to sin, so we have to acknowledge that we're going to sin, but we're going to keep moving towards Jesus for the rest of our lives. It's God's will that we pray for another. And it's God's will for us to grow collectively as his church, as his children, and we get to work alongside him in our growth. Because you have eternal life, whatever is on your mind right now, whatever you feel stuck in, whatever you feel weak in, whatever you are longing for, go confidently to the Father in prayer. And that's what we're going to do now. That this, this now, but, but John's very clear. This is our relationship with the Father in our request. To boldly ask and surrender to his will. And so, Father, we do come to you. And I ask that you would help us, you would lead us in what should we ask of you? What should we request of you? That you would stir up. Maybe we're, we feel a little blank in our minds that, Lord, you would show us what we should ask. And then, Lord, I pray if there's anyone that has seen a brother or sister this week, this past month, this past year, commit sin, and they've, they've pulled away from that person, they've run away from that person, uh, they've in their heart just committed to not deal with that person anymore, I pray that you would lead them to pray for that person now. To move towards you in prayer and also move towards them in love. Father, we ask this in your son's name, the son who believed, the son of God, Jesus, who is the Messiah, who came in the flesh who died, rose again, and reigns right now at your right hand. In his name we pray. Amen.